Hello, welcome everyone. This is Cindy Silva, and I'm here with Dr. Scott Taylor. Welcome. Nice to be here, Cindy. I have been looking forward to this, so what a treat to see you. Oh, thank you. I have been too. I really want to learn more about this topic that you are an expert in. Um, Dr. Taylor is an expert in near-death experience and shared death experience. Um, now, I've just recently heard about shared death experience. I know very little about it, so I'm hoping to be um, educated in this conversation and, and share that with our listeners. Um, I just really want to keep this uh, spontaneous and open and give you lots of freedom to go in any direction that feels inspiring and helpful for those that might be interested in this topic. And you know, specifically, how do we integrate this knowledge in our everyday lives to make it practical? I agree. Let's, we can go there. It's, uh, uh, I think the thing about near-death experiences and shared-death experiences that are really important to all of us, I mean, because you can pull up you know, on YouTube, all kinds of people talking about their, their NDEs, but there's very little information out there about how do you integrate that learning into your life? And, you know, for the big umbrella is that um, with both shared death and, and near-death experiences, it's about um, being comfortable with who we are as non-physical beings and realizing that we um, inhabit this physical body for just a very limited amount of time. And then we go back home. We go back to the non-physical universe where um, we reside throughout all eternity. So um, getting to be comfortable with that knowledge that um, there is a hereafter, it's benevolent, it's a, um, a wonderful thing that we come into this physical body. And it's a wonderful thing when we leave. I mean, we get to learn so much here in the, in the physical universe. Um, and it, um, is, it's like returning home again when we go back to the non-physical universe. So I, um, I think the, the big lesson is to not be afraid of death, which means in reality that we don't have to be afraid of life, that we can be fully present knowing that um, we all win. You know, <laughs> when, we, when we leave our physical bodies, we are in, a, in this joyous spot where we can go back home and, and visit those souls who are kind of our community, our, you know, You've heard people talk about soul groups. Well, we've got them. And, you know, it's wonderful to go back and and catch up with everybody and, and discover what these learnings were um, in the physical world and how that helped us grow as, as souls. Mm. Yeah, as you're speaking, I'm thinking almost like, um, how do I say it? Like, feels like when we say we go back, but um, it's sort of a, a linear thing, but I don't, I don't think that's what you're saying here. I think that we have an immortal self, which is with us all the time, right? Yeah. 
And we just forget about that. We get, you know, um, intoxicated by physical reality through the senses and we become identified with that and forget about that metaphysical part of ourself, right? That's the subtle bodies. And so, yeah, we have a, we have a non-physical body that exists in all dimensions at all, all the time. And I believe that um, the role of the human brain is to take and filter out all of the, the, mm. the, the information that's available to us. Because, you know, in our, not, our non-physical selves has this ability to um, have access to all information at any time. Yeah. Well, here in the physical world, um, you couldn't exist with all of that, right. all that information coming in all the time. So you know, here in the physical, it's important that that the information is is filtered down in such a way that we have the information that we need to exist here in the physical. And um, you know, it's important, especially at the very beginning when you know there were you know, tigers in the grass and snakes in the trees. And, you know, we had to be really focused in order to survive here in this physical world. And having all of that extra information would not have been, would not have been helpful. And so we agreed when we came into this physical body that we would um, filter out those and that we would not remember our existence on the other side. Um, so that we could really begin to understand the gifts that duality has for us. And there are many. Um, And at the same time, um, when people have near-death experiences or shared death experiences, they, they reopen that window again. And those filters go away. And sometimes when people come back, um, those filters are permanently gone. Some are reinstated, but some are permanently gone. And we, you know, see near-death experiencers with all kinds of abilities after they come back into the physical world. Mm-hmm. You know, their psychic abilities are off the charts. Their ability to um, be sensitive to sound and and um, electrical and they're much more sensitive to medications, for instance. There's all kinds of uh, changes that happen um, physically, physiologically, that um, you know are the result of having had that experience of coming um, out of our physical body into the non-physical universe and coming back again during a, a near-death experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like traveling to a foreign country, learning the language and bringing it back with you and then being able to speak it with people that speak that language. There's some kind of a an opening there that gives us access to communicating in another way with these planes of reality where we exist simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm hearing more and more that more and more people are having these experiences like um, it's becoming more exponential like it was, you know, now and again, you'd hear about these experiences, but it feels like there's this um, blooming of people having these experiences and bringing that information back and a lot of it, you know, being 
common, a lot of common experience. Oh, it's hugely common. There's, there was a study done that asked about um, uh, how many people have had contact with the other side, you know, or the non-physical universe. And it's something like 60% of the population. It's a huge number. Um, not all of them through near-death experiences or shared death experience, but some just through uh, spiritually transformative experience or through uh, dreams or lucid dreams. There, I mean, there's lots of different ways to connect. It's, in, it's really um, prevalent in our society, but nobody's talked about it for a really long time. And now that's not true. Now more people are talking about it and it's become part of our culture. I mean, heck, Harry Potter had a near-death experience. So, you know, <laughs> when, when it gets to be in the, in the popular media like that, you know, more people are, have the comfort of stepping forward and say, yeah, I had, a, I had a dream of my grandmother last night and it was incredibly real. And and we talked about things that only she would know about, you know, that kind of thing. It, it, it's just happening over and over again. And it's making a, a real impact on our culture. And if you want proof of that, um, my favorite example is um, 10 years ago. That's a goodly amount of time. If somebody said to, to you, Cindy, um, you know, give me the image for death. And, you know, without missing a beat, they would talk about this figure dressed in, in, a, in a cloak with a hood and, you know, with a rope belt and, and this big old sigh, you know, <laughs> right? So it was Grim the Grim Reaper. Reaper. Yep, right. exactly. That was the image that, that death had. Well, if you said that today, that hardly ever comes up again. What does come up is, you know, just like those albums on the on my shelf right there, it's the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. That is the image that has replaced death in our culture. Mm. Grim Reaper, you know, is very solitary. It's very um, mournful. It's capricious. You know, that big sigh just comes through and and kills all kinds of people in it. And it's, and frankly, it's grim. It's just, it, you know, death is a grim event. Think of the other one though. Think of the light at the end of the tunnel. It's you're going to some place that is bright and welcoming. And there are people that you know that exist on the other side. You know, there's this, when you enter into the light, there's a reunion with your dead family and friends and pets. So it's a, you know, it's a very forward-looking, welcoming, welcoming you back into the non-physical world. Um, and it's, so it's completely changed the attitude around what, um, what people think, what their attitudes are around death. And, yeah. and I wouldn't you know, be surprised. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. But and I also wouldn't be surprised if we end up changing the term of that experience from near death to the illumination experience or something, because I don't know, you know, where it, it feels a little bit like um, there's room there to um, 
Yeah, give that yeah, a different name. <laughs> for a long time, I attended Unity Church, and um, and the term there that they used in in their services and in their conversations was transition. Yeah, when we make our transition into the non physical universe, so the word death is just so final and it's and it's it's like it's complete there's a line drawn and then you know you you hit the boundary and then that's it well we know that is not true we know that there is existence after this physical body we know what that transition looks like from from both uh, a huge amount of near-death experiencers and now uh, the research that's coming out about shared death is equally as compelling and you know, it just says that we leave our physical bodies and we enter into a benevolent afterlife and we are welcomed and cherished and loved um, with no exception. No mm-hmm. exceptions. We are welcomed back as we are part of, of the whole, the one, the universe, part of God. Whatever your phraseology is, that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's have you share more about the shared death experience then, because that's something that's relatively new in our um, comprehension and experience. So I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. Um, would it be helpful if I I told my shared death experience? Yes, please, absolutely. Okay. Um, so this happened back in 1981. I was in love with a woman. Her name was Mary Frances. And she and her son, Nolan, were um, coming home from a day of sailing. And they were involved in this horrific car accident. And Mary Fran was killed outright. And Nolan, who just turned seven, um, was he had this mortal head wound. And they took both of them to uh, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So they had, you know, some of the best best health care in the world, but it it wasn't enough to to save Nolan. It it took him six days to make his transition, which is important because Mary Fran was one of nine kids, and it during that six days, um, you know, all of the family had a chance to come from all over the country to. Um, to be together and to lend support to each other and to to Nolan. And I mean, it was, there were a lot of them, <laughs> aunts and uncles and cousins and grandpas and grandfathers and friends. And that's just her side of the family. And then my family was there too. And so uh, because there were so many of us, we we divvied up and two of us would go into Nolan's hospital room every two hours and keep him company and talk to him and and try to um uh know that have him know that we were there and we cared about him um nolan was in a coma he never came out of the coma but one of the things we know about near-death experiences and about coma is that hearing is the last sense to go Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you go in and 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 be with him. So on the morning, 
the, mor the morning of the sixth day, um, uh, Janie, which was Mary Fran's oldest sister, um, we had the shift from 3 to 5 a.m. And we went in and we, you know, we, we read Nolan books. We told him stories. We told him about what was going on to in the, in the hospital and, you know, what it was like to have 50 relatives in this little waiting room across the hall and, you know, things like, um, <laughs> they had gone out and scavenged, uh, the, the sofas at the Mayo Clinic in the middle of the night and grabbed all the cushions. And so they could put them down on the floor and have a place to sleep. Um, and you know, we just, just fun things that were going on. And as I got to be about quarter to five in the morning, Janie, um, went to the end of the bed and she, she took a look at the, um, the chart that was there. And then she looked at all of the myriad of monitors that were around Nolan's head. And she just held her hand out to me and said, um, Scott, it's time. So we got a couple of chairs. We sat down by Nolan's head and we told him that he had been a really brave boy, that he had fought really hard to stay with us here in the, here in the physical world. but if his mother should come now re reminder that she died six days before, but if Mary Fran should come, his mother should come to pick him up, that it was okay that he leave and go with her and that we loved him very much and that um, he would always be in our hearts. And so when we finished that, our shift was up and we, we left and the next shift came in. Well, it wasn't 45 minutes later that the nurse on the floor came into uh, the waiting room and woke us all up and told us that it, that it was time. And that it wouldn't be much, that he, Nolan wouldn't be lasting much longer. So we all filed out of this waiting room and we went into Nolan's hospital room. And so there's all these people. And as it turned out, I was one of the last to enter into the, into the hospital room. And it was, I don't know, four or five deep around the hospital bed. And I didn't see any point in being, you know, six back. So I wound up just sitting on the windowsill next to Mary Fran's brother, Willie. And you know, we just waited for that, that ominous, you know, you can watch the heart monitor. And then when it, when it went flat, um, you know, there's that tone that comes on. And what I experienced when, when Nolan's heart monitor went, went flat was Mary Fran coming across the veil and scooping Nolan up out of his physical body. And they embraced each other and it was exquisite. And for some reason, I got to participate and feel what it is that was happening between Mary Fran and Nolan. And they 
had this this moment together and then to my surprise they they turned and came and embraced me and then the three of us left and went to the light and when i entered into the light it was the most extraordinary experience it was um it was unbounded love it was reunion it was being united with all there is it was an extraordinary gift of unconditional love and acceptance and mary fran and nolan and i got to hang out there for a while in the light together and we had a chance to um to say our goodbyes we had a chance to um affirm our affection for one another and we had a we had a chance just to kind of hang out <laughs> and and to be with each other um in the light and then at some point um it was complete there wasn't any words really said but it was like we're good we're we've done what we needed to do and how oh, that sounds so mechanical um it wasn't like that it just yeah we were complete and the two of them turned and left and went further into the light and then i came back to my physical body that was there in the hospital room so that's part a part b is that um when i left and went with mary fran and nolan into the light i was also fully present in the room with the other grieving relatives mm. and i know this because i am in this ecstatic space i have i have i am touching the light of the universe the, the love of god and it is like this ecstasy is just trying to break out of me and i know my face reflected this this love this joy and it was entirely inappropriate for the room if anybody had looked at me they they could very well have misunderstood what was going on and so i had the presence of mind to do the only thing i could think of which was to cover my face with my hands and and i just sat like that until the other part of me came and and rejoined my physical body so i didn't have a word for it then um now i know it as bilocation i have i had two distinctly separate consciousnesses both fully active and functional and it was um let's just say there's a great scottish expression which goes it was beyond my ken <laughs> k e n meaning my understanding and i i i really didn't know what to do with it i grew up in southern minnesota in a small town 
And um, I went to a mainline Presbyterian church growing up. And, you know, in the lexicon of the Presbyterian church, they don't talk about bilocation. They don't talk about the ability to witness people coming across the veil and having the ability to um, go with them to the light. I mean, everything about the, this experience was outside of um, anything that I, that I knew about. And it took a long time for me to be able to verbalize it, um, to be able to share it, because it was really outside my family norms. Um, yeah, and it until I could really become comfortable with 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 that experience, I didn't tell anybody for fifteen years. Mm. So it was, um, you know, and Raymond Moody had written his book about uh, near death experiences in nineteen seventy five. This is eighty one, and there's nothing about this experience that even resembled what he wrote about as near-death experiences, had I ever have written that book or read that book, which I hadn't, I didn't know that existed back then. So, um, yeah, so um, that was my experience and it allowed me, um, no, that's not the right word. The right word is it ignited within me this intense curiosity and I knew that if I had been there once, that I could do it again, that I needed to find a way to do it again. And I mean, I searched all over. I, my original thought was that at some of the ancient sacred sites, there was like this extra spark of energy that would propel me into, into that non-physical space again. And so, I mean, I went to Stonehenge, I went to um, the Oracle of Delphi, I went to more cathedrals than you can shake a stick at. Um, and I went to the Sphinx and to the Great Pyramids and to Machu Picchu. And I mean, I went all over the place. And no, there's the spark wasn't there for me. And, and then I tried different kinds of um, meditation techniques. I studied with the Omoto religion in Japan. I studied with shamans in both North and South America. I did TM. And then I encountered the Monroe Institute and their particular brand of meditation um, allowed me to touch that space again. And I became adept at their techniques, became a trainer for them, and eventually became their president and executive director. And so, you know, I had the ability to, through meditation, um, reconnect with Mary Fran and Nolan. And it's it's been a real blessing in my life to have that ability to you know, touch base with loved ones. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I think the Monroe Institute was one of the first organizations I connected with when I was on this path of awakening. For some reason, I think I was into astral travel and wanting to know 
how to do that. And they were the ones that were at the forefront of studying all of the research. And yep. But my question is about this, your uh, shared death experience. Um, is this common with other people that are having shared death experience that they, they leave with the person who is a crossing over making the transition and then they come back? Is that how you're defining a shared death experience or? Yeah. Yeah. So somebody is making the transition and And in my case, it was Nolan. Nolan was the one who was leaving his physical body and entering into the light. Um, and a shared death experience is there is an invitation from that person to join them in the experience. Mm -hmm. And what we know about shared death experiences now is there are, um, there's some things that, that happen that make it more likely. And that's one of them is that there's a heart connection between the two people. Um, in Nolan's case, he never knew his biological father. Mm -hmm. Um, he, um, that man never uh, took responsibility for the child and never was part of, of, of his life and didn't contribute in any way. And so Mary Fran just, you know, said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll raise him myself. And she did. So when I came in and um, I was getting to know um, Mary Fran and you know, we had developed this loving relationship and, and I was doing the same thing with Nolan and, and he you know, was starting to see me as a, as a father figure. And, um, and so, Yes, there's a heart connection. So Nolan was was bonding with me and I with with Nolan. And so it's nat it would be natural that he would reach out to me at the time. And I'd just come, you know, just 45 minutes before I'd been talking in his ear about how brave he was and how important he was to me and to the family. So, you know, we had we had that that connection. And so there needs to be this invitation from the person who's making the transition. There needs to be a, um, a heart connection. And the other person, me, um, they need to be open to the experience. And, and what happened for me is that I've been sitting on this windowsill and I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour, some, somewhere in there, we were just watching this heart monitor. So there really wasn't anything that was going on in my life. The room was quiet. You know, there was, I wasn't emotionally distracted. I was with him and his journey. And so, you know, I was, I was open to that and therefore it, it could happen. Mm -hmm. Now what, what we know lately is that if you want to do this with somebody, an aging parent or a spouse, and you have time to talk about it and arrange it, um, there's a there's a, um, a key. Um, that's not the right word, but there's um, what you do 
um, okay, so say you and I were were having a conversation and I said, okay, you know, I'm I'm the one that's going to be making the transition. And so when um, we would determine um, some really important point in our life, um, like uh, for my wife and I, for instance, when we first met on the on the corner of Eleventh uh, and LaSalle in downtown Minneapolis, that meeting, when it happens in the life review, that's the trigger mm-hmm. for the person who is having that life review to reach back into the physical world mm-hmm. and and pull me along. So it's like hypnosis. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And in, in the fact that there is a there's an agreed upon trigger. Mm-hmm. And, and so that makes it, a you know, a lovely thing that can happen. And when you listen to, um, people who've had shared death experiences, there seems to be in almost all the cases, some sort of an agreement. It may not be as explicit as what I was talking about, but, um, you know, caretakers, um, well, will often bond with patients and and they'll wind up going with them on their journey. And it's because they've, um, you know, at one time, one of them said, boy, it sure be, you're going to go on this amazing adventure. I wonder what it's going to be like. It'd be really interesting if I could go with you. You know, words to that effect. Well, son of a gun, if it doesn't happen. <laughs> and... Um, and unlike near-death experiences, where some people have a negative experience, uh, this latest study that came out by William Peters, um, he interviewed 800 people, and 100% of the 800 people went to a benevolent afterlife. And and so, I mean, that's really encouraging. <laughs> and it's... Um, There's this argument that is, well, you know, in near-death experiences, they aren't, they aren't really a death experience because, you know, you actually suffer physical trauma, you leave your physical body, have an adventure in the non-physical universe, and you come back again. You know, and well, that coming back again was all part of the plan. So, well, in shared death experiences, it's not like that because there is somebody who is making their final transition. And what I'm doing, like with Nolan, is I'm witnessing it. I'm witnessing what that transition is like. Now, mine was relatively simple. I was in the light with Mary, Fran, and Nolan. Some people have the whole nine yards. I mean, they they go through the tunnel. They're there with it at the reunion. They're they witness the uh, the life review. They get to, um, you know, be part of um, talking with their um, their council of friends. I mean, you know, all of the common elements that are in near death experiences they get to witness, but from the outside. So it's um, it lends real validity to. The, the common elements that are in near-death experiences, because that's what showed up 
when other people were witnessing it during shared death experiences. So it's it's a a um, a validation of all of the research that's been done over the last fifty years in near death experiences. It's quite extraordinary, and and so now, I mean. Uh, if you're the least bit curious, wouldn't you want to go? <laughs> you know, and go, wow, I could go, I can witness that transition and then come back to my physical body and continue living here in this physical world, only with the insights that are available to us uh, because of the, uh, what happens to us in the, in the non-physical realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, there's more talk about this, it's becoming more common at the same time, um, people are able to go out into space and come back, you know, billions, mm -hmm. you know, so it's really interesting, these parallels that we, our consciousness is exploring within these bodies outside of this dimension. Um, and coming you know, it's, back. Yeah, it's really helpful when a whole raft of people said, you know what, I had an out-of-body experience and you can learn that same, you know, there's a technique and you can learn it too. Mm -hmm. I had this near-death experiences and, and this is what I learned. And for a shared death experience, it's, you know, it's not weird. It's not rare. It's, it's available to anybody who has the curiosity and to do it. Well, it's a skill too. I'm, I'm, yeah. That's what I learned through the Monroe Institute. There's the skill and there's tools that you can use to practice and hone that skill. The question is, you know, there's a lot of um, attraction to something like that to escape life, you know, that's one aspect of it. And then there's another way to approach it, which is to use that skill to improve the life that you have in this dimension and relationships. And so um, tell me, you know, through your experience and working with people that have these, what's the best way to integrate these experiences into our life and relationships that make them practical and helpful instead of just a way to avoid our problems or avoid yeah. our responsibilities. Well, I've, I've taught meditation at the Monroe Institute for 35 years and people of all different um, motivations came to that. And, and just like you said, some people are coming in and they're, they're just having a real trouble being in this physical world and in fact um <laughs> it was not uncommon for people to take our meditation course and enter into these expanded states of awareness and then come back and go oh my gosh that's the space i live from all the time and what this course allowed me to do was to come back into the physical world and to begin to realize what it's like to be in the physical world and not be in some expanded state that allow or is um, 
is like pulling back from from the physical and almost universally what what winds up happening is that people spend more and more time exploring the non-physical universe and their learning skills like out of body and how to navigate and how to talk to non-physical entities and you know there's there's lots to do out there but the more they do when they come back they wind up being more present it, it's just a natural outcome of that ability of that of the process of being a um, of, of exploring the non-physical universe um, and one of the cool things I think anyway is that you know once these skills like at the Monroe Institute we used um, binaural beat technology so mm -hmm. it's an audio technology that allows us to enter into and sustain our um, expanded states of awareness by using those techniques it doesn't take very long three four times to practice and you remember them you don't need the technology anymore it's just a remembered skill and as we move through and develop more and more skills they become integrated into our lives and we begin to realize that um, that it enhances our life here in the physical mm -hmm. and it enhances our joy because now we're beginning to understand why the world works the way it does so with understanding comes acceptance mm -hmm. to say oh i get why it is that you know my best friend was killed in a car accident why is it that um the universe is constructed the way it is well once you know then it becomes something to explore to experience to to be with um there's no need to escape because this is the escape this is the this is the place to be and to learn and to understand why you know what this energy body is that we have and and how can we use it and and how does how do we connect with um, with other people and the physical world and the non-physical world all at the same time it 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 just becomes this really interesting playground and I, I it's just it's just more fun than a person should have <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a theme you know in the, several of my conversations and books i'm reading and uh, this topic today just all showing me that there's more and more interest and openness and curiosity in the direction of our right brain right the hemisphere of the right brain because we've been so focused on the the linear the logical the defining you know the language and and everything about the the left side of the brain and it's how mm -hmm. it functions which is a beautiful tool but and we you, and you may remember at Monroe um that technology what it did is it balanced the two hemispheres of the brain yeah and then the two hemispheres of the brain 
then started to operate as one unit. Instead right. of two separate units, it was one. So you had both the linear and the spatial. And so all, uh, um, um, all of the lenses that each hemisphere has to look at a particular situation are brought to bear. And yeah, it, it provides a, um, a clear sense of what reality looks like and gives us a lot more options. Right, right. So yes, yes, we get to we get to pump up that right brain a little bit, and mm -hmm. calm down the right. So that's what I feel like. What you're saying is what we bring back from these experiences is that connection to the spatial, right? To um, you know, because even like when we sleep at night, that's like a mini near death experience, right? Yeah. I think we leave our physical bodies every night when mm -hmm. we sleep and we go out and have grand adventures. Um, you know, and dreams, you know, dreams yeah. from that right brain. And those, and those dreams have all different kinds of qualities and they enter into different dimensions. And yeah, I'm doing some fascinating work right now with, um, uh, people that can enter into meditative state and then jump dimensions mm -hmm. and, and inhabit their body in another timeline. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, so there's a, there's a skill that could um, really add perspective to what it is that we're doing here in the physical, in this physical universe, knowing, wow, there's a bunch of physical this is a multiverse here and right and what what does that mean if you could actually um inhabit that mm -hmm. you know from my perspective what it what it means is that um is that we could have intentional bleed over from one timeline to another we can learn from ourselves in in our different dimensions and isn't that a fun thing yeah like, oh over here, I learned that lesson already. We don't need to make it again. <laughs> right. Well, there is only one consciousness having an experience of itself through all these forms, yeah. and all these levels. And so if we identify with the one consciousness as what we are, then we can bring our point of view into these different um, vehicles that consciousness is having an experience through and we can experience anything anytime just by repositioning our point of view and I think we just get really tied into our familiar identity and and as we get identified with that we get locked into that and so as we loosen the grip of our identification with being a separate individual with certain roles and names and responsibilities we start to give ourselves more freedom to experience ourselves in different ways through different and one of those one of those that we let go of you know people that have near-death experiences come back and they tell us all the time that when you enter into the non-physical universe you enter into a place where there is not linear time mm -hmm. and that all time is now and that we have um and that being the case, it means that if we are having other lives, think reincarnation, 
they're not happening, you know, linearly. Right. They're all happening at the same time. Yes. So I'm a Roman soldier and I'm a Polynesian fisherman and I'm a, you know, a, somebody who's um, farming in Africa. I mean, I mean, I got all of these lives going on, right? I'm a, my, one of my favorites is I'm a pirate. <laughs> I don't live long in that life, I don't think. Um, anyway, so the same bleed over we were talking about is present there too. That, you know, what we're learning in those other lives is available to us here in this life. And yeah. it's so, you know, one of the things we need to let go of is this sense of, you know, time happens like this. Well, no, it isn't. It isn't like that. It's it happens all at once. And you know, that really, that expression from near-death experiencers, it says, you know, like, my life flashed before my eyes. Mm -hmm. It's really true. I mean, the whole thing happens, and it's that fast. And all these scenes in your life, I mean, and for us to describe them to other people, it sounds like they're linear, but no, they're, they all happen at the same time. And that's okay. We get it. <laughs> it's, because you're seeing it from a different point of view. You're seeing mm -hmm. it from a consciousness that can handle that kind of information stream where the left brain consciousness gets overwhelmed, right? By that, you know, having to sort all that information, that um, nervous system gets overwhelmed. I think, yeah, it's all state bound, right? Like information is state bound, the state that we're in. That's why when we do the, a hemisync, our brain waves go into a different frequency where we enter a different state. We have access to different information. Yes, yes. Indeed. About ourself and about life and our relationship to the whole. And this is where, um, where I have to give um, some uh, patience. I'm not sure, uh, Okay, so you're a monk and you've been sitting up on a mountaintop meditating your brains out for, you know, 30 years, right? And all of a sudden in one of your sessions, you are shown the origin of the universe, how the universe was created. And you come back and you're trying to describe this to the other people in your monastery. Mm -hmm. And the only words you have are linear. Right. And so, you know, so was the world created in seven days or was it, you know, is the universe 14 billion years old? Was the earth created instantly or was it, is it four and a half billion years old? Well, the answer is yes. Both. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you're if you're trying to describe something from this nonlinear perspective to people who mm. whose state is linear, you have to give them a story that kind of makes sense, and and that's okay. You know, we're doing the best we can. Um, the when you take a look at near death experiences and the common elements that are written down by the researchers mm. and the very first one in most of the lists 
is the word ineffable, meaning it's a great English word that means we don't have good English words for what happens here. And um, when I get to, when I'm interviewing people who've had near death or shared death experiences, I'll get to the spot where the goldfish response kicks in. And you know what this is, you know, it's, it's like goldfish, right? They're just, they just sit and stare at you and their mouth moves. And they're trying to say something, but nothing happens. <laughs> There's no words come out. Bless their hearts. They're, they're trying to come up with some metaphor that approximates their experience. And it's just really, really difficult. And that's okay. And, and for your listeners, you know, it's one of the things I would ask you to do is you, when you read near death and share death experiences or anything that involves a spiritually transformative experience, remember everybody's speaking in metaphor because it's not exactly the way that it's, that it's written. It's, it's close, but you know, people are doing the best they can using the words and experiences that are in their memory bank. And, you know, that's, well, it's one of the reasons that um, near death experiences are all different. Um, yeah. It also you know, reminds me of how like, you know, we exist on multiple planes and the physical plane is a correspondence to all these energetic planes, but in a very different way, right? Like it has to be represented very different in the physical than in these other planes where there's less laws, less things that are governing the way time and space function, right? That it's, it's not an exact reflection. No, it's not exact. And, and everybody's doing the best they can to, to make it understandable. Sure. Yeah. To yeah. share. To basically, I think it's for me, it feels like it's because we can point at it with our words, but we can never give anyone the direct experience. People have to have the experience for themselves to know it. Because, you know, people will hear other people's near death experiences. And because it isn't their experience, they might even judge it as being false or not real or this delusional or whatever. But until that person has that experience, they can't actually fathom that there's a reality like that. And so I feel like maybe the reason it's ineffable to explain some of these um, non-physical realities is because the only way to know them is through direct experience. It's like they say with the Tao, the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. That nice. Yeah, it feels like that to me. Like anything ineffable is just a direct invitation for direct experience to get out of the mind of trying to pin it down with labels and just go. One I'm of the kidding. one of the brilliant researchers in the field of near death experience is a guy by the name of Dr. Ken Ring. He was at the University of Connecticut forever and ever, retired now. And um what he discovered in his research is that 
when you read about near-death experiences. So you're reading an account of, you know, John Doe. And as you read this, um, he calls it a benign virus, that there is energy in the words that are on the printed page or in the YouTube video that can transmit to you some of what that is like. And then that over time, it reading about near-death experiences actually changes you like a near-death experience would change you. It just takes longer. Mm -hmm. And um, so there is a way to kind of get a sense of it, but it's, you have to be open to it. It's very subtle and, you know, it'll take a little while, but I have found that um, because I'm an experiencer and I have been in that space. I've touched that light. Um, I can read accounts and I can, I can feel what they're feeling. You know, there's this resonance, this energy resonance in there, except sometimes I'll read an account and there's no life there. It's like, mm. it's been edited to death <laughs> and you know, it's like, well, shoot, I wish I, this seems really interesting. I just wish I could have gotten the real story instead of whatever this this is, because there's there's no juice to to the story. And I think if you're the least bit sensitive, you you pick up on that. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. At any time we're entering a field that's unknown to us and unfamiliar just the information begins to soften the perception or, you know, the membrane of per our perceived reality of what's possible gets challenged by this encounter. And then eventually over time, the permeation of that opens us to the experience. If it's meant to be our experience, it will happen. Yeah. But I don't know that chasing it is going to um, be the answer, but just being open and relaxed and trusting that this information is coming into my awareness for a reason. And um, I'm going to relax and be curious about, about it without needing to defend myself against it or prove it or disprove it, but just get curious. And um, yeah, the, uh, I think your work and your whole life I... has been that. That's your whole life. <laughs> yeah. I think it's one of the reasons I so appreciated uh, the Monroe technique because, you know, there we were very direct, you know, the more you try, the worse it's going to get, mm. you know, it's, it's about um, relaxing into the experience and letting, you know, the technology do the work. And that's just another metaphor for being open and receptive. Yeah. And then also the witnessing of how many more people are having these experiences and talking about them is just showing us that the, the permeation is happening collectively, right? I mean, there's an individual relationship to um, that possibility. And then there's a collective one. And the more that the collective is open to this and experiencing this, the easier it is for the individual. Yeah, it gives gives acceptance and says, yeah, check it out for yourself. You don't have to take other people's word for it. You can do this. It's, it's available it, to anybody. 
Yeah. There's a fertility around it. You know what I'm saying? Ooh, that's a lovely way to phrase it. There's a fertility. May, may I borrow that? Of course. But you know, <laughs> when something's fertile, it's receptive, right? Yeah. You know, and I feel like there's a fertility around this, um, these domains that want to be known. They want to be revealed. Like there's something wanting to be known and it's, it's making itself aware of itself in all these forms. So we turn our attention towards it. And as we turn our attention towards something, we get more of it. We get more. Yeah. You take, yeah. You take one step towards it. It takes two steps towards you. Mm -hmm. And And so why, as we wrap this up, why would we want to turn towards this and give our attention to it and have it take steps towards us? How will it improve our lives if we open to this experience of, um, you know, these other dimensional aspects of ourself communicating and embodying them in this life, physical life? Yeah, I think it gives us... um, a pathway to enjoy this life in the physical. Um, this life in the physical is bounded by by rules that are here in duality. But the what people don't understand is that there's also the rules of the non-physical universe that are just as applicable here. And it allows us to um, to truly enjoy our life here in the physical and to um, arrange for this um, understanding so that we can take and and be at peace with ourselves. And then that in turn mentors other people so that they, so we can all be, um, have acceptance of who we are as multidimensional beings, as non-physical beings, that are, you know, inhabit a physical body for a limited amount of time. Um, yeah, it just makes our life um, easy. Uh, I'm not sure easier is even the right word, but it just makes life more fulfilling mm-hmm. here in the in the physical world. And it helps explain why things are the way they are and not get hung up with whether they turn left or right or up or down or in circles. You just go, you know, you can step back and go, wow, that's really interesting. I wonder what change is going to happen as a result of that. And, and smile and, and be cool with whatever comes our way. Thank you for that perspective. I think, this perspective from that was my um, phone applauding that by the way (laughs) (laughs) that perspective from Einstein that you can't solve the problems with the same level of thinking that created them I think that's why this is opening up so um so much in the collective is that we have problems that seem insurmountable and unsolvable right now and they are from the level of thinking that we're at, but if we open to this other level and allow the perspectives and the solutions to come from this non-linear consciousness, if you will, that we can, 
we can solve some of the problems that we're facing, but it requires an integration of our wholeness, not just this part of ourself that, or this, this um, orientation that we've become sort of uh, conditioned towards in terms of um, consuming and um, the physical only, we have to integrate this other consciousness. And so that's my perspective is why this is happening now is because we need, we need to have it happen now. Yeah. It's, it's about, um, yeah. Transcending and including like transcending the limitations of this linear thinking and including what's useful about that skill, the skit, you know, that, perspective, but including this expansive perspective of a nonlinear as we evolve. And, um, yeah, I know that, you know, the scientists are at a spot now where they're recognizing that consciousness is the foundation of the universe. Mm-hmm. It isn't atoms or quarks or leptons or, you know, it, all of that physicalness arises out of consciousness. Yeah. And that the, the fundamental thing of the universe is consciousness. And when we know that, then we begin to um, treasure that and we begin to, to watch it, develop it, it meaning watch how we use our consciousness to watch how we develop our consciousness so that it um, serves us and what we would like to have happen. And it's nice that both science and the um, esoteric community are, we're coming to the same place. We've always been there. It's just taken a while for us to use words that we can understand each other. Yeah. And what I love about that is that it, it can't become a commodity. You know what I mean? That could be bought and sold and traded. And, um, you know, there's, it's hard to corrupt consciousness, right? I mean, I think definitely there's efforts to it, but if we have a direct relationship with it, we have the same access. It's like a levels the playing field. Everyone has the same access to it. It's like the sun shines evenly on everyone. It doesn't choose, like you don't get more, you know. And nobody can get in between you and that and consciousness. it is your birthright. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for providing this great definition and sharing your story and uh, opening perceptions for people to have direct access to the consciousness that wants to be known and integrated. Any last words or shares you'd like to let our sure. listeners know about um, your website or anything? Um, you know, one of the things that, um, I've done over the years is figure out how to use meditation to, um, visit the same places that near death experiencers go to. And that's what those albums are up behind me. I I have six albums of guided meditations that take you to various spots or various of the common elements of the near-death experiences it uses binaural beat technology, which allows you to enter into and hold expanded states of awareness. 
It's really good for training about how to focus. So there's lots of benefits uh, to that type of meditation. Um, and that and those albums are available on my website, which is neardeathmeditations.com. Neardeathmeditations.com. And also on that website, um, if you're really serious about um, exploring the other side and developing the tools and techniques to navigate the non-physical universe, I have a five and a half day class that I teach that's just way cool. <laughs> just We really have fun. We make the trip 25 times to the other side. <laughs> and so you really get to know what is going to happen and why and and then once you're there, what do you do? And, you know, so it's, God, we have fun. So neardeathmeditations.com, that's the place to go. And um, if you'd like to hear more about uh, the afterlife, my podcast is The Afterlife Files. Easy to find on any of the podcast venues or on YouTube. So that's it. Thank you, Cindy. This has been a wonderful time together. Yeah, it was and is. Thank you so much. Gosh, I, I wish I would have asked you. Maybe there's time um, to just, it's just coming to me to ask. So I'll ask if you have time, you can answer. If not, sure. I'm good. Um, but is there one story that surprises you? Like one NDE story, with all the stories you've heard, what's the one that stands out that you repeat over and over if there is one. Yeah. I have a couple favorites, but the one that just popped into my head um, is about uh, Mary, not her real name, um, who had uh, breast cancer. And she went in to the operation and, you know, the doctor opened up and she died on the operating table. And she left her physical body and she entered. <laughs> it's just, Scott, it was just like at Sunday school. I said, what do you mean? He says, I woke, I woke up and there I am standing on a cloud. And before <laughs> me are the pearly gates. And there's, you know, St. Peter. And he's got the lectern with the big book. And <laughs> so I just walked right up to him and I said, hi, Mary Smith here. <laughs> and, and. St. Peter said, likes to see you. Really good to see you. Hang on, Mary. Let's see. And he flips through the pages and he runs his finger down. And he goes, there you are. You're not due here yet. You have to go back. Mm -hmm. And she goes, no, I'm not interested in going back. I'm, you know, I had cancer and it hurt. And this is great. I feel great. I look great. I would really like to stay. And, you know, and, and be here with you and, you know, my relatives. And anyway, so the two of them get into this tussle and they argue back and forth. And St. Peter, seeing that she's not going to give up on this, tells her, I tell you what, Mary, on the other side of the gate, your family members are sitting there and they're waiting for you on the other side. So I tell you what, I'll let you in. Why don't you spend the night with them? catch up, tell all of your stories. But at seven o'clock tomorrow morning, I want you right back here again and we'll continue this conversation. She agrees, goes, 
has this wonderful reunion with their relatives, has a blast. They have a party, they catch up, they just, they, she stays up all night, but she remembers at seven o'clock, boom, she's back there in front of St. Peter. And he says, Mary, time for you to go back. And she goes, uh, 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 that was great. I really enjoyed it. There is no way I'm going back. <coughs> Not happening. And so they argue some more. St. Peter, realizing that he's kind of met his match for today, says, I tell you what, why don't I let you in? It turns out that, you know, at our university, we're having a great lecture today on a subject I think you'll really enjoy. So why don't you go to the university, take some classes, hear this lecture, and then when that's all done, go visit your family again, but seven o'clock tomorrow morning, I want you right back here. So she does. Goes to the classes, has a great time. Goes, visits her family, has a great time. Comes back at seven in the morning and they be, resume their argument. Well, this happens like six days in a row. On the morning of the seventh day, she appears before St. Peter and she, she can tell something has changed. And St. Peter very kindly, but very firmly says, Mary, you're going back and you're going back now. Mm -hmm. And she gets it. So clearly the cards are aligned against her on this one. He's not going to peter out. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens then is that um, she gives it one last college try. And she says, I will go back willingly. But if I go back, you have to take the cancer from my body. And St. Peter looks at her and goes, you'll go back willingly? You're not going to argue with me anymore? She says, yes, I will go back willingly. I will not argue with you anymore. St. Peter goes, done. Next thing she knows, she's in the recovery room. And the doctor is there, and he's holding her hand. And he says, Mary, I am so sorry. I opened you up. And your chest cavity was just filled with cancer. There was no way that I could take the cancer out. Um, it, it has metastasized all over your chest and I don't know where else, but it's bad. And I'm, I'm really sorry. And Mary looks at him and goes, no, that's not true. There's no cancer in my body. And thinking that she was still loopy on drugs, he says, well, I tell you what, um, once you go through the recovery process and I'll come and join you in your room later. And she says, no, 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 don't bother. You have to take a post-op x-ray, right? And he said, yeah, I do. He said, okay, I want you to take the x-ray, have it read, then come to my room. Okay. So he does. He shows up at her room sometime later that night. He opens the door. He's got tears in his eyes. And he says, I don't understand this. I had my hands in your chest. And you had cancer everywhere. And I'm looking at this chest x-ray that we took just not very long ago. There's no cancer. 
There's no cancer in your body. At which point I'm listening to this story and I said, Mary, that's a fabulous. What, what an amazing story. And she goes, oh, I am such a bad negotiator. And I went, what are you talking about? You, you got to go to heaven. You spent six days with your friends and your relatives at universities. You, got, you came and you negotiated having no cancer in your body. How can that be bad negotiations? And she said, what I should have said was, remove and heal my body, remove the cancer and heal my body. But instead the cancer was removed and the damage that the cancer had done is still present. And it's gonna take me a long time to heal from that. Mm -hmm. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Isn't that a wonderful story? Mm -hmm. It has, it has all the elements of hope and negotiation and expectation and be careful what you ask for. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one of the stories that just, I love telling that. Yeah. It seems that there's an element in this probably for another conversation, but that, um, based on a person's beliefs, right? Like where she met the St. Peter. Saint Peter early yeah. days and the, she had a background, obviously, in that. Yeah, that we we bring our story with us on this experience, right? Well, you know, the pearly gays really are pearly. That's what she told me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take, I'll believe her. <laughs> well, thank you again, Dr. Taylor. So wonderful to have this time with you. And um yeah, I just appreciate the work that you're doing and getting the, the word out there and spreading the possibility of um, people having more experiences like these that help them live the lives that they're living now even more. Um, well, thank you, Cindy. I have enjoyed our conversation and back at you. Thank you for spending time creating these podcasts so that people can understand more about who they are and how to be here in the physical world. You mm. get a star for your efforts. <laughs> well, it's my favorite thing to do. It's, this conversation, I think, is uh, the medium for something incredible to be known. And uh, I like to make space for that. So thanks for holding the other end of it with me. And uh, for all of you who tuned in and listened, thank you for your time. There's a lot of uh, different things pulling at our attention these days and that you spent this time with us means a lot. All the links that um, Scott mentioned are in the description. So you can look there and find him easily and all his offers. And um, maybe we'll do this again. So we'll look forward to that. Bye for now, everyone. Bye, Thank everybody. you.